Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. And in this, the ninth part of this In the Beginning series, we finish chapter 1. I always have a sense of accomplishment when we finish a chapter. Even though we don't really finish this series of In the Beginning yet, we still have all of chapter 2 to go through and then look at the remarkable change that takes place through chapter 3. But as we continue in day six of creation and explore in greater depth the crown jewel of all of God's creation, and that is mankind. Do you know that? That you and I are the crown jewel of God's creation. Think about that for a moment. The majority of our world lives in an existence that says you are nothing. You are worthless. You cannot know joy. You cannot know peace. You cannot have hope apart from whatever this world has to offer. But that's not what God's Word says. God's Word says that we are the pinnacle of His creation made in His image. You know, back in the 80s, there was a book that became incredibly popular by Henry McGee, The Search for Significance. And the reason that that book resonated so well within not only the Christian community, but was instrumental in bringing lost people into a relationship with God, is that the majority of humanity lives apart from any purpose or any meaning. Self-esteem is elusive. It's defined in the world by how good you look, or by how profitable you are, or by how influential you can be. And that's not really changed much in the last 50 years. And our world is increasingly in need of the truth that there is significance in you because all of humanity is created in the image of God. Think about how differently our world would function and operate and think if that truth was known and celebrated and rejoiced over. Instead, it is continually squashed within the public square, within the culture in which we live, emphatically denying the existence of a God, of His supernatural act of creation, leaving mankind to wonder, why am I here? Well, verse 26 tells us, that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so the creation of mankind that we find communicated to us in this verse is very simply that it is personal. It's highlighted with the usage of these personal pronouns, us and our. And so in the creative, in the creation narrative, we've seen the language of God's Said, which is the command, and then let it be done, which is the fulfillment of that command. And those expressions are impersonal in the sense that the mandates are made to no one in particular. But here the language is very, very different. The familiar phrase of and God said is followed by the usage of these personal pronouns. And God said, let us make man in our image. And so although God has personally created everything by virtue of this command, here we see a more intimate involvement, a more intimate level of personal involvement in the creation of man, emphatically stated in the phrase, let us make man in our image. And so the creation of mankind is unique uh, 
in all that God has created. Nothing has been created in the image or in the likeness of God. And God does not have a personal relationship with any of the other created elements. Not light, not the seas, not the earth itself, not the vegetation, not the land creatures, not the sea creatures. He only has this personal involvement, investment relationship with man, the crown jewel of his creation. So the image and likeness of God are synonymous terms that mean in the resemblance of God. We are not little gods. We will not become little gods in the future. But we share in the mental, in the moral, and in the spiritual likeness of God. And verse 26 is a declaration within the Godhead that mankind would be made in His image in non-material ways. And this is what makes the creation of mankind so unique, we are made capable of knowing God in a personal way. Nothing in the created world has that capability other than mankind itself. Mankind is created for dominion. Verse 26 tells us that we are to exercise dominion over the earth. And so in the same way that God exercises dominion over the universe, He has created. God has delegated to mankind this ability to exercise the dominion over the earth in which we live. This is a great privilege And it requires great care and great responsibility. So as we look now at the conclusion of day 6, we're going to focus our attention on verses 27 through 31. Here's what God's Word says to us this morning. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, of all the earth, and every tree which is fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sea and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So these final verses of chapter 1 are a fulfillment of the conversation that took place in the Godhead, communicated to us in verse 26, let us make man in our image. And they serve as an introduction to detail that will be provided for us in Genesis chapter 2. So as we look at day 6, the first man has been created. There is the fulfillment of this creation, of this created act that originated in God saying, let us make man in our image. And so it's not very obvious to us in the English But verse 27 is in fact a poem. It is the first poem in the Bible. And its focus is on the divine image in which mankind has been created. Now, I am not a poem kind of guy. I don't read the Old Testament looking for the poems and trying to break them down in their poetic structure. But here is the very first poem. It is called a chiastic poem, which means there is inverted repetition. And the last line explains what is set as an inversion. 
stated for. So verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. It is now inversed, or inverted rather, in the image of God he created him. And then there is the explanation, male and female, he created them. So this is the fulfillment of the creation of man in God's image. The truth that mankind was made in the image of God is the starting point for a biblical understanding of the nature of man. It explains our spiritual urges. It helps us make sense of the human conscience. It establishes our moral accountability to the law of God and the commands of God. It reveals the very essence of the meaning and the purpose of life, it is filled with practical and doctrinal significance. The reality is, God has created us in His image, and there is nothing in all of the created world that can boast of such a truth. Now, when this biblical understanding is removed from mankind's awareness We are no more than just another animal living on the earth that God has made. But when this truth is understood and when it is emphasized, it becomes the very foundation of our existence. And it answers for us the basic questions in life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is my purpose? And many, many other questions. We aren't merely physical beings with no purpose or no significance. Instead, we are the crown jewel of God's creation, created to know Him and bear His image while on this earth. Now, while God does not possess a physical body, the human body has been specifically created to resemble this image. For example, we are told in Scripture that God can see, He can hear, He can smell, He can touch, and He can speak. And when you combine those senses, if you will, with the mental and the moral and the spiritual likeness of God, it is easy to see how God has created mankind to resemble Him. There's nothing in the animal kingdom that has the same mental, the same moral, or the same spiritual reality that mankind does. And when you take our physical bodies and you join that together with this unseen attribute that resembles God, you can see why mankind has been made as the crown jewel of all of creation. There's something unique about the human body which is uniquely appropriate for God to manifest Himself in our lives and through our lives. So mankind has been created and created in the image of God. And now verse 27 in this last line introduces us to something that is not yet explained to us. And that is very simply this, male and female, He created them. Now here in chapter 1, we are not told of Eve's creation... That comes in chapter 2, but we are introduced to this here in verse 27, where male and female, he created them. This is the final line in this three-line poem, and this introduces us into four important truths 
about the creation of mankind in this expression of male and female, he created them. We won't see all of this in verse 27, but it continues as we go through the remainder of chapter 1. So the four important truths, letter A, is both bear the image. Now, if you go back up to verse 27... It very simply, very simply says this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you can't make the distinction that man was created in the image of God and female was not created in the image, in the image of God because here they are joined together as being created in the, in the image of God. So both bear the image. Now, in most all of ancient cultures that we are aware of, women are seen as inferior to men, and they are treated very poorly. Even within the Israelite nation, who were called to be unique, a unique people of God, Women were regarded as little more than property. Nothing had changed in the time that Jesus came into this world. And in many parts of the world today, this regard for women is still true. Women are regarded as inferior to men. And they only find their worth in what they can do to benefit the lives of men. Well, here in Scripture we see that this is just not true. In fact, the opposite is said. Women are not inferior. Women are not worthless. They share being created in the image of God. Even though we aren't yet told of Eve's creation, we are told here that she, like Adam, is created in the image of God. It is very clearly stated in this verse. Now, although men and women have different roles, which we will flesh out some in chapter 2, both are created in the image of God. The focus of verse 27 communicated to us in this poetic structure is that mankind being created in the image of God is the focus of verse 27, and women are included in this. So both male and female, he created them, and both of them he created uniquely in the image of God. But we see something else here. Both are distinct. Male and female, he created them. He did not create a unisex. He created distinct sexes when He created them, male and female. Now, despite what is being said in our culture today, there are only two sexes. There is male and there is female. Period. People are free to call themselves whatever they want, but that does not change the truth that is communicated to us Thousands of years ago in biblical truth that God created male and female and what we have learned in modern recent and in recent scientific discovery through DNA and the genetic code is that male and female is incredibly distinct from one another. Now people in our culture today can call themselves any variety of alphabetical identities, but it doesn't change the truth that God created us male 
and female. Now, to be honest, we could pause here and I could spend the remainder of our time together breaking down the uniqueness of our being male and female. And I'm not going to do that, but I do want to highlight some things that I think are very, very important for us to understand as we think about what is so prevalent in our culture today. There are many uns- there are many seen and unseen physiological differences between men and women, and virtually all of these differences are rooted in our DNA or within the genetic code. So we probably know that men have an X and Y chromosome, and women only have an X chromosome. There's a pair of chromosomes in the male. It is X and Y. In the female, it is two X's. And this distinction is what makes men and women incredibly different from one another. The chromosome difference directly impacts the endocrine system, which produces and releases hormones throughout our bodies, and this endocrine system is responsible for virtually all of the differences that, uh, excuse me, that is responsible for virtually all of these physiological differences. So why are men and different, why are men and women different? It is rooted in the DNA structure, the genetic code, that is fleshed out through the endocrine system, which releases hormones, which makes us obviously different from one another. So for example, men have larger lungs, they have wider airways, and they have a greater lung diffusion capacity than women do, even when men and women are of the exact same height. Think about that. We both can be of the exact same height, but it doesn't change the physiological distinction that is a result of our uniqueness through the endocrine system. There are well-defined differences in brain structure that create differences in pain threshold, cognitive style, which is defined as a person's characteristic mode of perceiving, of thinking, of remembering, and problem-solving. And what that means is this. Men and women think differently. They process stuff differently. They remember stuff differently. And they solve problems differently. It's not because one is just weird. It's because we're physiologically made different, rooted in our genetic structure. There are also differences in the cardiovascular function. Men have a larger left ventricle, which creates all kinds of differences within the cardiovascular system. Men generally have a lower resting heart rate than women, but women have lower peak heart rates than men. Men's heart rates typically rise faster during exercise, and they slow quicker afterward. There are many, many other unseen differences between male and female that are rooted in our DNA. Now, there are also some obvious physical differences between men and women. Men typically have proportionally more muscle mass, more bone mass, and a lower percentage of body fat than women. But the most obvious difference are all related to the function found within procreation. Can we not just look at men and look at women and say, wow, there is a very distinct difference here. All of those differences are rooted in the genetic code of our DNA fleshed out through the endocrine system. And our world today is militant 
on erasing this distinction and trying to create a unisex where we are just people. Where do you think this angst comes over the usage of pronouns? Well, if you don't call me by my preferred pronoun, which is a mystery unless you're wearing a sign around your neck, I will offend you because you're saying regardless of how I am biologically created, rooted in the depth of all of science that we know, I deny that reality and choose to be something different. There's a a militant effort to change this distinction and apart from an understanding that men and women are created in the image of God and we are to find vast amounts of purpose in that, apart from understanding that, we're just left to kind of figure it out on our own and to make sense of what makes sense to us and to try to erase and change what is biologically rooted in how we were created. I mean, it really is a mystery to me to how people can look at men and women and say, well, we're just people. There really is no difference. There really is no distinction. I choose to identify as fill-in-the-blank. It's it's just nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. And it is absolutely devoid of any science. And all of this science that we can now understand and apply is given to us in Genesis 1.27 before men had the capability of understanding this distinction in how men and women were created. Well, like I said, we could spend a lot of time on this and I'm not going to do that. Letter C. The third important point we see here is both are necessary. Now this leads into what is explained to us in verse 28, which says, God blessed them, male and female, having been created in the image of God. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. So the second chronological blessing found in the Bible here is with the command to be fruitful and multiply. Now, when God created the land creatures, He said similarly, Be fruitful and multiply. But the reality that men and women are now created in the image of God, there's a very... There's a very distinct difference in this blessing that is now communicated to men and women created in the image of God to be fruitful and to multiply. It is a unique and beautiful expression of God's love for humanity that He has created us in His image with the ability to procreate and therefore produce more creatures who are likewise made in His image. Don't think for a minute that, for a minute that just Adam and just Eve are created in the image of God. The plural usage that we find there in verse 27, and God is, and God, He created them, is to be passed on to all of humanity, not reserved just for Adam and Eve. And here similarly, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. The plural usage here indicates that the passing on of humanity being created in the image of God is implied in this blessing. So not only did he want a world full of mankind, he also designed men and women to partake in the joy of fulfilling the purpose of being fruitful and of multiplying. But the necessity that we see here is indicated in this creation of male and female. Procreation is impossible 
It is impossible without both sexes. God created Adam and Eve. God did not create Adam and Steve. Had God created Adam and Steve, there would be an entirely different genetic code, an entirely different genetic structure, and then the the ability in the modern terms to identify ourselves as however we wanted to be identified. But God didn't make us that way. God made it necessary for the procreation of the human race in the creation of male and female. It is impossible for two men to make a baby. It is impossible for two women to make a baby. This is irrefutable science. You cannot take the genetic structure of two men and create a baby. You cannot take the genetic structure of two women and make a baby. It is impossible. It cannot be done. Many of the seen and unseen physiological differences between men and women are directly related to the purpose of procreation and each sex's unique role in it. Now, I would say that women have a much different and a much more difficult role in in procreation than men does. And God has created you with the ability to do that perfectly. There's, there's really a lot we could say, and I would be ad-libbing and I don't want to do that. So, it gets to be very, very dangerous when you think extemporaneously and start saying a lot of stuff that you haven't really thought through. But... The differences that God has made within men and women is specifically designed in the propagation of the species. Now we'll talk more about roles when we get into chapter 2 and some of the differences that are that are fleshed out for us here. But the point here in verse 27, carried down into verse 28, is that God made male and female for a reason, and the distinction of male and female is rooted in science regardless of what the culture says, and these distinctions are necessary for procreation to take place. Now, letter D, the fourth purpose that we see here, is that both exercise dominion. After saying to them, plural, be fruitful and multiply, God says in the last part of verse 28, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now it's very, very poor exegesis. It's very, very poor biblical interpretation to insert a distinction here where there is the usage of the plural form and saying that Eve does not share in dominion just as she does not share in being created in the image of God. You can't make that distinction as you as you interpret what is being said here and let the text speak as it does. So both are going to exercise dominion, and one of the purposes found in procreation is to multiply and to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it. Now, in the little slice of heaven called the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's ability to do that was probably pretty easy compared to the mass of the earth being filled with vegetation and every kind of creature, every kind of bird flying around, and to still exercise dominion over it. 
God doesn't really specify all that is included in dominion. We get a little bit of hint in that in chapter 2 with the naming of the animals. But here we find that Adam and Eve are to jointly share and dominion over the earth that God has placed them in, and he has delegated that authority to them. Now, the world in which Adam and Eve originally lived was perfect, a paradise untainted by sin or by evil. Adam had all that he could ever want in a perfect perfect environment, with a perfect climate, with an ideal partner, with a mandate from God to be a caretaker of this world, and then sin changes everything. Not only does man get cast out of the Garden of Eden, and now the the responsibility to exercise dominion over the earth changes with the scope of all that has to be governed by mankind. The world and mankind are now immersed into a great, great curse. We find here in Genesis three seventeen and 18, Then God said to Adam after the sin, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So not not only did humanity fall under God's curse, so did the perfect world that God made. Exercising care and dominion over the world would now be radically more difficult because of the reality that the created world has now been submitted to the curse of the fall, where thorns and thistles will now be a part of what grows upon the face of the earth, not just the vegetation and the trees that are to provide food for Adam and Eve, for humanity, and for the animal creatures. So mankind is to exercise dominion over the world that has been incredibly hampered by sin. And as a result, mankind has not been a very good caretaker over the world that we have been delegated responsibility for. We can see that in the way that man has hunted animals to extinction. We can see that in how we have irresponsibly polluted the world that we live in. We are not to worship the created world, nor the creatures that God has made, but we are to take care of it. We are to be good stewards over what God has entrusted to us, and that provides, excuse me, that creates for us a responsibility to, to exercise dominion over the world in the same way that God exercises dominion over the universe that He has created. So these four truths that we see here, fleshed out for us, related to God created man and women in His image, that both share in that image, both have been blessed by God, both are necessary, both are very distinct from one another, both exercise dominion. And now as we look at the tail end of what it is God has created, we turn to number six in this ongoing outline, and that is the provision that God makes for mankind. Verse 29 and 30, Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit-yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And then the provision for all the land creatures and for the sky creatures, and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. 
So notice here that Adam, as well as every other creature in the animal kingdom, were vegetarian in the original created order. There was no sin, therefore there was no death. There were no carnivores in the animal kingdom. All animals were tame. And even those species that are now carnivores were once vegetarian. They only ate of the plants of the vegetation of the earth. Now that does not mean that we are to be vegetarians today. If that were so, there would be instructions or restrictions given by Moses for the nation of Israel and these restrictions or instructions would then be carried over into the New Testament. So Leviticus 11 identifies for us many of the dietary restrictions that God gave to the nation of Israel. We have, for example, restrictions or prohibitions against eating pork, shrimp, shellfish, many types of seafood, most insects, scavenger birds, and various other animals. These dietary rules were never intended to apply to anyone other than the Israelites because it was purposed that they would be a unique people set apart for him and a part of that uniqueness was in these restrictions that God gave to them in terms of what it was they could eat. So the purpose of the food laws were to make the Israelites distinct from all other nations. And so after this purpose had ended, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. We see this in Mark chapter 7. And he, Jesus, said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Jesus is speaking of the food that we intake. Why? Because it does not go into his heart, the very essence, the very soul of who man is. It goes into his stomach and is eliminated. And then this parenthetical statement that Mark provides, not an add-on by man, not an add-on by me, thus he, Jesus, declares all foods to be clean. This continues... In the book of Acts, where the removal of the dietary restrictions are given to Peter, and it says here that he, Peter, saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the, of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean, indicating that the restricted animals that the Israelites once lived under were in this sheet that was being revealed to Peter. And again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. So at the time Jesus comes, and in the fulfillment of his messianic Purposes, God removes the dietary restrictions from the Israelites, meaning that Christians are free to eat whatever they wish. They can restrict themselves in however they choose for personal or for health reasons. We can't say that the Bible says, because the Bible doesn't say that. Here, the world was filled with an abundance of food, vast varieties of it, and all of it was suitable for man and for the beasts of the earth to eat and to provide sustenance for them. So everywhere Adam looked, food was literally hanging on the trees. The whole world reflected the abundant goodness and generosity of God. And so as we think about that, think about that imagine a time when there was no competition for food. 
Imagine a time when there was no hard labor to produce food. Imagine a time where there was no drought or flood or natural disaster that made the growth or the harvesting of food impossible. The bottom line is this, the reality of hunger in our world is the direct result of the curse of sin. Do you know that today in America the government pays farmers not to grow food because it would drive down the prices and it would make food so plentiful that it would be cheap and economical? I think this is still true. I think it has been said that the United States could provide enough food for all of the world where nobody would be hungry if we could transport it to them before it would rot. Think about that. Hunger is a direct result of the consequence of the fall. So finally, as we conclude chapter 7 here, day 6 of creation, we see the verdict. God saw all that He made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So creation is complete. And God looks upon all that He has made and He declares it to be very good. The dark and empty earth, which was once covered in water, has been completely and radically transformed. And everywhere you look, in all directions, there is a lush green landscape filled with every kind of vegetation, every kind of animal, every kind of bird soaring in the sky. It is a picture of absolute perfection, of absolute harmony, of peace. And God looks upon this and declares it to be very good. It is the only time in the creation narrative that God says it is very good. There are many times where God says it was good, but here, as it's completed, with the creation of mankind as the crown jewel, God looks upon the completed work of creation and declares it to be very good. Each aspect of creation is majestic. We've looked at some of the animal life that God has made. We've looked at some of the plant life that God has made. Every aspect of creation is filled with wisdom. It displays the matchless power of God. But now that God has created man, He declares it all to be very good. And at this point in time, as we experience time, the world is only 144 hours old. I think my math is right there. God looks out over the perfection of His creation knowing that in a short span of time it's all going to radically change. Man will disobey and fall into sin. He will pronounce a curse upon man and the world that we live in. It will no longer be very good. It will quickly be marred and stained by sin. And even with that being true, you and I today can still look out and see the beauty and the power and the majesty and the glory of God in what it is He has made. Everything that you and I enjoy in this world is the result of the goodness of the grace of God. Everything that we enjoy is directly connected back to what God has created for us. And even though it is marred and stained by sin, it is still 
displaying the majesty and the glory of God. He is still worthy of our praise. He's still worthy of our worship. He's still worthy of our adoration. And what has been stained by sin will one day in the future be restored back to its previous form of perfection. And the redeemed will live in the perfect glory of God and be able to understand what it means when God says, it was very good. Well, let's pray.